We are a people who like control. We like to control our own lives. We want to be masters of our destiny, controlling our own fates. But if you've lived a little while, you realize that in order to have complete control over yourself, you need to have complete control over your neighbor. We are not just individuals with our own wills to contend with, but we live in community. And if we want something done, we often need to work with other people. So oftentimes, abuse and manipulation come from our intense desire to control. We want somebody to do something, and they're not doing it, so we make them do it, right? And this desire for control leads to lots of problems. We also don't do very well when others are succeeding, and we are not. We look at their success with contempt. Sometimes we even want to sabotage them. We react wrongly when we see other people being blessed and we are not. Envy, pride, and the desire to control. Saul provides us with a case study of these character traits. But Jonathan, his son, has often shown us to be an ideal. Someone Saul should be like, but isn't. Now remember, we are in this section in 1 Samuel, that is a chiasm. That is, it's like a sandwich. You have two um, pieces of bread on either side, and then you have the good peanut butter and jelly in the middle, right? And uh, it started in chapter 16, and it will end at the end of chapter 19. We had two episodes of David um, showing David in a favorable light as he rises to fame and success in the court of Saul. Now we come to the very center where David is successful. Everyone loves David. He has the praise of all the people. And there are different reactions to that. We see today the reaction of Jonathan, how he responds to David's success. And in the next two weeks, we'll see how Saul responds. Not quite so favorably. In fact, he detests David and actually expels him from his court leading to David's sojourn in the wilderness. Now, so we're going to see over the next three weeks a reaction to David. And David is the Lord's anointed. He is the Messiah, the one that will save the people from their sins in that sense of the Old Testament. And to set the stage for the right reaction, pointing us clearly to how we should react to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in Jonathan and in Saul, we see two different reactions, a contrast. We've seen this over and over again, for this is how the author of 1 Samuel loves to teach. So as we look at 1 Samuel 17, we're going to begin at verse 55, and just a short text, move down to verse 5 of chapter 18. We see that Jonathan reacts to David's success in love. He makes a covenant with David. He rejects his own royal ambition so that he could be in league with with David. So Jonathan provides an ideal response to the Messiah. Because the Messiah, David, is just a type, in that reaction we see how we should respond to Jesus. Because Jesus is king. We should be laying aside our own worldly ambitions to follow him. 
So let's read this text together this morning, beginning in verse 55, which is also printed in your bulletin. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And and Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for this, your word. And we ask, Father, that you would give us eyes so that we may behold wonders therein. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verses 55 to 58 are really background to how it is that Jonathan meets David and becomes closely knit together with him. This takes place during the battle. Remember that Saul made a promise to the one who would go out against Goliath. He promised him wealth. He promised him his daughter in marriage. That is a royal alliance with the house of Saul. And he promised that his family's debt would be wiped out. And so he needs to know who is this young man that I may give him these blessings. Who is this youth that goes out against this Philistine? And, of course, Abner, who is his commander, has no idea. But as soon as David returns from striking down Goliath, he introduces himself and tells them he is from the family of Jesse. And it's at that time that Jonathan is also introduced and sees David, sees who he really is, as we'll see. So this is sort of background to why it is that Jonathan met David and how they become close and connected. And uh, of course, uh, at the end of verse 5, we get sort of a, it's not as if at that first meeting, now all of a sudden David has all this success. So it's sort of fast forward through the life of David now in the court of Saul. How is it? How is his um, going? Is he successful? And the answer is yes, and all of the servants of Saul approve that David has been put over the army. He is like second in command to Saul. So we see a a bit of a a fast forward when we get to the end of the text, showing the very center of this chiasm, that David is successful. All the people see it. All the people rejoice because of it. And David And that the reason is because David is empowered by the Spirit of God. He is led and driven by the Spirit to execute justice against God's enemies. And as we mentioned, there are two different reactions to this. 
And today we're going to look at um, Jonathan's reaction to David. Now notice that first he loves and makes a covenant with him. Jonathan is the crown prince. He's next in line for the throne. Decorated warrior. Remember, he has fought many battles. And from what we can discern, he's wise and prudent. He has so far set us an example of what Saul should be like. This is how Saul should live. This is the things that Saul should be doing. Jonathan does them, his son. He is more faithful over and over again. One thing that's not readily apparent as we read the text is that Jonathan and David are not the same age. They're not peers. Jonathan is much older, approaching middle age and old enough to be David's father. We know this because David was 30 when he became king, according to 2 Samuel 5, verse 4. And Saul reigned for 40 years. So if you subtract 30 from 40, David was born on the 10th year of Saul's reign. Well, if we go back even further, we realize that Jonathan is already fighting in battles with Saul on his third, the third year of his reign. And you cannot go out with the army if you're under 20. Remember, we learned that from David and Goliath. So Jonathan has to be at least 20 years old at the beginning of Saul's reign. So by the time David is born, he's 30. Now, fast forward to the time where David is fighting Goliath. He's probably 18 or 19. So he's close to 50. So, um, or over 50, in between 50 or 60. So Jonathan is not the same age as David. And this makes his actions all the more astounding. As he sees this rising young upstart. How does he respond? How does he react to David? He responds the way that we should be reacting. This makes, and this is astounding because of their culture that they're in. It's cutthroat for who would get the next king, who would be in line. So Jonathan loves David and his soul is knit to him in love. Unfortunately, our culture is so steeped in sexual immorality that it can't conceive of an intimate close relationship that is not sexual. And this is so sad. This is so sad because they read things like the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Or, or in 2 Samuel 1 verse 26 when Jonathan dies and David sings this lament. He sings, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary surpassing the love of women. Instead of a close, intimate friendship, modern commentators and people who have an agenda, they have a, uh, something that they impose upon the text rather than reading out of it, they see only sex. They see it's impossible for some, a man to have a close, intimate relationship where he would say something like this, and it not be sexual. Now, there are several problems with this. First, it's evident in the law that God hates homosexuality. He uses language like it's an abomination. That's the strongest language God could use against the sin. And in, in fact, he levels penal sanctions against it. That means the death penalty. 
for those who are practicing homosexuality. God doesn't take this kind of thing lightly. So if Jonathan and David were in an illicit homosexual relationship, they would be covenant breakers. They would not be being faithful to God, which does not make sense given Scripture's definition that David is a man after God's own heart. Further, the author is not writing what you might call hagiography or hero worship. He's not glossing over sins in David's life. He gives us an exemplar. David is an exemplar, but he's flawed. He's broken. He has sin that he wrestles with. He's not a good father. He fails in his adultery with Bathsheba and murders her husband. And the author doesn't shy away from giving us the full picture of who David is, warts and all. Why would he not tell us that David was in an illicit homosexual relationship if that were the case? So, for those reasons, despite our over-sexualized culture, no one from antiquity saw this as a homosexual relationship. This is a thoroughly modern thing to read that and think only sex but this term for love is not really romantic love but it has political undertones that is why there is a covenant between them a covenant is an oath that binds two parties together with promises and threatened cursings so jonathan is entering into a solemn agreement with david now we're not given the terms of that covenant But what it suggests, which I will draw out in a moment, is a renunciation on Jonathan's part of any claim to the throne, of any royal ambition that he has. Before we look closely at why Jonathan could treat David in this way, I want to draw your attention to their relationship. For it highlights something important that really needs to be revived. The importance of close friendships between men. Now, man, I'm going to talk to you for a moment. We have talked about this in our men's forum over the past year or so. Men really struggle in this area. Women more naturally make and keep lifelong friends. Now, that's not always true, but it's generally true. But men, not so much. We struggle with our emotions to begin with. It can be challenging to let other men into our lives. We want to be seen as the strong the silent type, the self-made man, or other images that we have picked up from our culture that don't involve close, intimate relationships between men. And they keep us from forming these things that are so godly and helpful. I know that after I left the military, there was like a hole. I really missed the camaraderie, that you, the deep friendships you had with men who You were in the foxhole together. You had to do all kinds of difficult things together. And you relied and trusted on another for protecting you, for having your back. Many men who, after they leave the military, complain. There's there's nothing like that out in society. Where can I have those kinds of friendships, that kind of community? Well, this is the place for that. This is the true community. The place where those boundaries, those distinctions that keep us separated have been torn down. Last week I was at the Tolkien Conference over at Grace 
Reformed Episcopal, and all of those talks have been made available online, and I would highly commend them to you. They're wonderful um, as they reflected on the life of Tolkien and, and in particular, The Lord of the Rings. Uh, Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, wrote The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. He was a Catholic, but he was a faithful man who loved the Lord and really operated from a biblical worldview, which is woven throughout his stories. But what's interesting is that through his friendship with C.S. Lewis, who is known for mere Christianity and the, the Chronicles of Narnia, through their friendship, a close friendship, Tolkien led Lewis to the Lord. And think of all the impact that Lewis, both of them, have had on the Christian tradition. Further, they influenced each other's writing projects. One of Tolkien's biographers talked about what an evening together looked like for this little group they formed of men who were uh, literary scholars. They worked at Oxford as teachers, and, uh, and so they had particular things they were interested in. But what I, what I want to show is the deep friendship that they had. He says this is what it was like on a Thursday night. They would meet in Lewis's big sitting room, congregating sometime after 9 o'clock. Tea would be made and pipes lit, and then Lewis would boom out, well, has nobody got anything to read to us? Someone would produce a manuscript and begin to read it aloud. It might be a poem or a story or a chapter. And then would come criticism, sometimes praise, sometimes censure. Soon the proceedings would spill over into talk of all kinds, sometimes heated debate, and would terminate at a late hour. And you see, the the atheist Lewis was won over not solely by persuasive arguments. There were those, but because Tolkien constantly brought him back to the true myth, the carpenter that died for the sins of the whole world, that he, in this close relationship, earned the trust of Lewis. He was an expert in his field, and we might not have a a meeting that looks like theirs because we might not be literary scholars. But the importance is that they had a deep bond together that influenced Lewis to the point that led him to profess faith in Christ and and really has transformed uh, much of the 20th century when we think about Christianity. Part of the hunger that drives homosexuality is the need for non-sexual close male relationships. Many men have been deprived of this and they look for it in perverted ways that become sexual. But the desire is godly. The desire for a father to lead and shepherd. The desire for other men to walk alongside of in the faith. That desire is good and godly. And it needs to be shaped by us men who are godly having close intimate relationships that are not sexual. Where we show, we preach to the world, this is how you love one another as men. Women, of course, too. We are facing an increase in father hunger. As nearly one out of every four children grow up without a father in their home. And this has led to the rise of these kinds of problems because we we have an absence in our hearts. We yearn for that relationship, which is good. 
boys, they cannot reach manhood without a father, or at least a father figure, for masculinity is not something that comes naturally. It's hard won. One of my favorite contemporary writers, Anthony Esselin, in a book I would highly commend, it's called Out of the Ashes, he said this about boys growing up. He said, the boy must be made into a man. Nor is it true that once he has established himself as a man, he need never worry about it again. Manhood is risky. It must be publicly affirmed, and you can lose that affirmation by cowardice or effeminacy. We have to cultivate good, godly male friendships for the future of our Christian faith. It's imperative that we show the world we can be close. We can be intimate. We can even say, I love you, man, and it not be sexual. We need to reform friendship. I would not be standing here today if it weren't for these kinds of friendships. I met with a man every other, a, a brother. He was a peer. I met with him every other week at a pub, and we talked theology. And he taught me. He taught me how to think. He led me in the study of Scripture. He taught me how to love my wife, how to care for my children. And I did the same for him. And as iron sharpens iron, so another man sharpens another man. We need godly friendships. In fact, I would go so far to say, if your husband has good godly male friends, your marriage will be better for it. He needs those relationships. He cannot confess every sin to you. He cannot expect you to understand his struggles in leadership in caring for you, in dying to his own desires and living for you. But another man can. He understands what that's like. In the same way for you women, you need godly friendships with other women who are mothers, who are grandmothers, who have walked through seasons of life that you haven't walked through yet. It's important for us to cultivate these kinds of relationships. We need to redeem what our culture has deprived us from. But that's not all that Jonathan does. He, he does love, and we do get a picture of the friendship, but he also lays aside his royal ambition for David. It's one thing to love someone and be loyal to them, but Jonathan goes above and beyond even that. Jonathan is the crown prince with rights to the throne of his father, so what does he do? Look at verse 4. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. What does he do? He strips himself. And this is not just giving the shirt off his back. It's a highly symbolic gesture. He is divesting himself of royal prerogatives and investing David with those royal ambitions. He takes everything relating to his royal station and gives them to David. This is unheard of in the ancient world. Crown princes kill rivals. That's what Saul's doing, right? They don't allow them to live because they want to maintain their power and authority. They do this sometimes even within their own family. We've watched those period dramas of the medieval times where it's cutthroat. 
And they oftentimes are historically true, right? That it was a great threat to your rule if somebody was a rival to your kingship. So you would have them killed. These are serious and weighty matters. And that's exactly why this episode is so striking. As I mentioned earlier, something about David clued Jonathan into the fact that he was the Lord's anointed. How is it that just upon seeing David after killing Goliath, that he is enthralled with and makes his covenant and strips himself of his royal prerogatives and gives them to David? What does he see in David? What moves him to make that kind of decision? Nothing else explains that except for that he recognizes this is the Lord's anointed. This is the one God has chosen. This is the one God has put his spirit upon for the task of being king. Nothing, and we we know this because of Saul's response a couple chapters later. When David is not at the feast and Saul wants to kill him, he says this to to Jonathan. He says, for as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. That's the natural response. That man needs to die because he is a threat to you and your kingship. But how does Jonathan react? Jonathan takes off his robes and gives them to David. That that vision, that ability to do that is driven by something beyond his own desires and ambition. Because that's what's leading Saul. That's all he can see is his own desires. He's not conforming himself to the will of God. He's conforming himself to his own will, his own vision. And Jonathan responds in love. He promises fidelity covenant faithfulness, and he divests himself of all ambition to that title as king. The text is, it's not explicit about why Jonathan does that, but we know, we can tell from his actions, if we piece them all together, is that he sees in David a worthy recipient of God's anointing. Somebody who God has called and set apart, who is making him successful. He understands that that success comes because God is blessing him. God is behind all of that. And this is the same impetus that keeps David from killing Saul. Over and over again, we're going to see in the future, he has time after time where he could take the life of Saul, but he doesn't. Why? Because he's the Lord's anointed. He's the Messiah. He's the one that God has installed on the throne. And so he waits until Saul dies before taking his rightful place as king. The second, David is a type of the Messiah, Jesus. So in that way, Jonathan's reaction to David is instructive for our own reaction to Jesus as the Lord's anointed, as Israel's king. Do you know why Jesus was rejected as king and killed by his own people? Because he wasn't the king that they wanted. He didn't look the part. He wasn't the conquering king that came in and defeated Rome and delivered the people of Israel. 
from Roman rule and oppression. Or he wasn't that quintessential Pharisee who agreed with their interpretation of the law and kept all of it. You see, they had their own ambitions. They had their own desires that they were imposing upon Jesus. And they said, no, you're not our king. We're looking for somebody different. We have our own ambitions, our own desires for what Israel's Messiah should be. But it's not just them. We do the same thing. We have our own designs for what Jesus should do. Right? It's your best life now. And I want it now. And if I have to go through suffering, then Jesus, where are you? You're not really doing what you promised. Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That plan is called bearing your cross, which means daily dying to yourself. If you say you love Christ and have covenanted with him like Jonathan did, why do you not do what he tells you to do? Why do you have your own designs for Jesus? Why do you not submit to him as Lord? Why do you insist on getting your own way, insist on continuing to be king. Jesus does not have rivals. He's not going to take a back seat. Paul, the Christian disciple, is a call to an apprenticeship with Jesus. That means that he is the master, you are the learner. Your place then is hanging on his every word. Your place is following hard in his footsteps. Faltering as you may be, the general direction of your life is Christ as king, and you as following him as Lord. Jonathan doesn't just provide an example of how one should react to the Messiah, but in a profound way, he is a type of the Messiah as well. Willing as he was to divest himself of all royal prerogatives and his claim on the throne. Jesus did the same thing, did he not? Paul in Philippians 2, 5 said, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus came as a king, but not a king like anyone expected. He came as a dying king. He, a king who would set aside his own glory and power to inhabit our broken human flesh. I mean, imagine the limitless God who can be anywhere, everywhere, now bound by time and space. He lays aside all his royal prerogatives so that he can come as our king. But just as Jonathan stripped himself for David, Jesus strips himself so that he can hang naked on a cross. All the pictures show differently, and we're thankful for that. But he was naked, humiliated, also that you, naked as it is to righteousness, could be clothed 
in His perfect righteousness. There exists no greater royal robes. I was reminded at Frank's memorial service of Isaiah 61, 10. So beautiful. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. So as Paul said, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Christ willingly emptied himself so that you could be clothed, so that you could be righteous. You have his righteousness. He laid it aside for your your sake. And since Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, Paul says you have to have that kind of mindset. You have to think like Jesus. You can't impose your ambitions upon the Christian life. You have to die to yourself. You have to submit your will to God's will, even to the point of death, just like Jesus did. He laid aside all worldly claims to the kingship so that you can be righteous. And he calls you to do the same. You cannot bring your ambition to the Christian life. You have to die to it. And you have to take up God's ambition, his call. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for the friendship that we have with you because of Jesus Christ. We're thankful that you call us your friend. We're thankful that you have covenanted with us, and though we were naked and ashamed in our sins, you have clothed us in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Father, you have called us to lay aside our petty grievances, our own desires, our ambitions to follow Christ. We would do so. Help us as we die to ourselves and live daily to Christ. For we pray this in his strong name and amen.